0: For people watching the Democratic debates this past week, you were probably, as I was, exhausted because I think collectively as a nation, we've watched millions and millions of hours of cable news, which for the president, it seems to be a completely normal thing that he's able to do and and maintain. That's the stamina that I think people need to uh, talk about more when they're trying to uh, burnish the president's image. I'm exhausted. Uh, There there have been so many moments of just watching the news and seeing these these extremely important impeachment hearings and then watching these debates. And uh, I'm looking for someone to help put all this together and put a little shine on it, and I'm hopeful that my friend Pat Garofalo can help me do that. Pat is the managing editor at TalkPoverty.org, which is the poverty team at the Center for American Progress, CAP, I'm here at the CAP Studios. Pat, thank you so much for spending some time with me on At The Table. Hey, of course, very happy to be here. Let's start with, um, you've written a book, Billionaire Boondoggle, which is all about how people uh, are in a in a system that's rigged against them and how employers are using the things that are what certain candidates might might in a very uh, New York slash Vermont accent describe as a rigged system. What were you heartened by uh, when you heard Democrats on the stage talking about issues that are very much in your wheelhouse, whether it's about poverty, which, again, you're editing for, for CAP, or whether it's uh, the book that you've written, or I'm sure issues that you just
1: tend to give a damn about in your everyday life. So what was uh, what was sparky for you? Well, for starters, the most heartening thing was that we didn't spend the first 25 minutes doing an endless debate on Medicare for All again. i said before the debate that if we did that, I was going to throw a shoe through my television and my television survived. It is still there. It is fine. Not that that isn't an important issue, but literally every single debate to this point has started with that endless cycle of Medicare for All talk. So I was just really glad to start with anything else this time. What I'd like to do now
0: is let's talk about tax versus cost. And we're going to do the next half an hour on. No, wait, let's do something else. I'm sorry. Let's do something else.
1: No, but you see the total that you're paying. Right. Um, So we didn't have to suffer through that again. Um, You know, I was generally heartened. One thing that I think is missing from the debates is that the candidates are not spending a ton of time critiquing the Trump economy and i really wish they would do that a little more because i honestly do think it's an area in which the president is vulnerable there's this story that he's oh great on the economy and unemployment is at you know super low rates and everything's you know super great and dandy i don't really buy that so i wish that the candidates would spend a little more time laying out that critique On the other hand, I always like hearing Elizabeth Warren talk about taxing billionaires because that's great, and the fact that it makes other candidates really mad is even better. So
0: what we've seen in the last few weeks is the momentum of Warren and Sanders and a few others who are pushing these strong plans that really attack some of the concentrations of wealth in a way that would try to level the playing field for for a lot of the rest of the economy. That has brought in some new entrants into the Democratic field, not people we saw on stage this week, but people who uh, have megaphones of their own. I'm thinking of uh, one in particular who has his own news network, um, w- uh, one who's the former governor of Massachusetts. There are some new people in this race. What Interestingly, I saw there was a Governor Patrick uh, landed uh, in in Georgia and apparently had an event and then canceled it because like no one showed up so uh, I think both of them are being met with a frosty. A frosty reception but it's interesting that this is the time while the president is dealing with everything that he's dealing with the democratic field is is it's shrinking in some ways and that we're not seeing some of the faces but there are also still people jumping into this clown car which is not usually how clown cars work pat we're supposed to see people just leaving it and i i don't know you mentioned elizabeth warren and that and that threw me onto this side tangent about about billionaires and obviously that's something that you've written about extensively so where do you think why are people who are uh, interested in providing finance news so concerned about, uh, about the Warren you know, second or third
1: position in this, in this race right now? I mean, she's literally selling a coffee mug that says billionaire tears on the side, right? So I think this is one of those things where there's sort of a fundamental disconnect between the conventional wisdom around the economy and what's actually happening out there in the real world and i get into this a lot in my book the billionaire boondoggle let me do the pr thing so my publisher is happy we've been told for years that the way to build an economy and to create growth and to do all the great things is to just throw a lot of money at rich folks and throw a lot of money at big corporations and let them do what they want and everything will be fine over and over it hasn't worked and you see in the sanders and warren critique of the economy putting a name and a face and and like a villain to that story, not just saying, hey, the economy isn't working for everyone, which is a story that Democrats have tried to tell forever, but actually naming and shaming, in Warren's case, often literal individuals, right? Saying, hey, this billionaire, I want your money. So I think some of it is in like the sort of DC pundit, CW consultant world. People are freaking out and going, oh, that's never gonna sell in America writ large. I think we have this idea that, Americans don't want to, quote-unquote, attack success, which I don't think is what Sanders and Warren are doing, but it's very easy to, like, kind of parody um, their uh, policy critique and put it into that box and then convince other people that they need to go out there and run against it. So I think we're seeing a little of that. Honestly, to me, the biggest takeaway of the debate was that it really muddied the water a lot and made it so that this primary season is going to last even longer than we thought because i think the people on the fringes the cory bookers and the amy klobuchar's and honestly even the andrew yang's and the tom steyers kind of had the best night they all sounded really good um and I'm not like, that's mostly theater criticism. I'm not saying I agree with their policies, but I thought that they finally brought a more coherent worldview to the debate than they had previously. So now there's actually something to stand up against the very, very coherent Warren Sanders policy platform. And
0: obviously, of course, uh, one candidate that neither of us has mentioned, and I think that's because we're in the cap building and it's probably, a, it's like a Voldemort. I don't think we can say Joe Biden's name in this, in this building. Is that even allowed? I'm not sure. Uh, no, but I mean, we're, the, there's also a very coherent platform that he's put out, and that some people are very excited about. i I don't know a lot of them myself, and certainly I don't whenever we talk about him on this on this conversation at the table, we don't really tend to get a lot of positive feedback, but there are a lot of he's still front runner in a lot of national outlooks. So let's talk about the economy the way you would talk about the economy if you were either editing a story here or talking about it with peers who work on these same types of topics on a regular basis, because when I think about the economy that the president would like to take credit for, I think about some of the things that Republicans seem very excited about, whether it's the tax cut proposal that was passed into law signed by the president earlier in this term, whether it was some of the plans for rehabilitating NAFTA that uh, the administration would like to see, whether it's the trade policies that have, (laughs) uh, I don't even know if, if there's nothing coherent about them as far as like even Republicans that I talked to are like, yeah, we don't have any idea what the hell he's doing. Um, so what, what would you like to see more of and what what have you gotten less of uh, when we think about these debates and, and what would you like to see more of from the candidates, but also uh, not just on the debate stage, but in white papers and policy platforms and in discussions and uh, conversations like this one.
1: So I think we need to like bracket trade and put it off to the side because that actually is a thing where Trump is sort of wildly different from what we've seen before.
0: From Republicans and from other candidates on the Democratic, like he's he's his own thing.
1: Absolutely, 100%. Like that's just like a new thing that he sort of does by himself. But then the wild story to me about Trump that we're not hearing from the candidates is how he did run as this economic outsider, right? As this sort of faux populist, and yet he came into office and has governed because of the Congress he has and because he actually doesn't know anything about anything as a bog-standard supply-side conservative Republican. Um, And I wish that that dichotomy got called out a little bit more, that, hey, this guy said he was for the forgotten men and women of the nation, but instead he's just doing the same damn thing that we've tried over and over again, that Bush tried, that Reagan tried, that didn't work. So I wish that was much more explicitly said in the debates, I think in the tangle and tussle to say, well, I have a plan. No, my plan is better. No, actually, I have a plan. We sort of lose that critique um, that he made all these promises to be a sort of different type of candidate. And I would argue, you know, he won for a lot of reasons. He won because of racism, and he was wasn't won because of xenophobia. And he won because he was didn't sound like Paul Ryan. You know, like there's a reason that Ryan and Romney and those guys lost, and he didn't. Um, so I wish that was pulled out a little bit more. The one thing I wish folks really focused on was that Trump had this giant corporate tax cut, right? That was a huge part of that um, tax cut bill that was passed in 2017. Lowered the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21, and I know some people are starting to like have their eyes glaze over, but this is really important. That was a huge cut, and it was supposed to do some really concrete things. In particular, Donald Trump promised that everybody in the country would get a $4,000 raise because of that corporate tax cut. It hasn't happened. You're starting to see some Democratic candidates talk about getting rid of that and what they would do with the money, which I think is a really, really important conversation to have.
0: Because, by the way, just just reversing the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, which is the, the, you know, Republicans are fantastic at naming some of these things. But um, just just getting rid of that would pay for big chunks of almost every platform that's being discussed on the Democratic side. like. There's not even anything else that you have to do. Just bring us back to 2016's tax level, and suddenly you're you're in a much better financial shape for these plans that, you know, moderators, not necessarily this week, but uh, certainly in other debates, were like, how are
1: you going to pay for that? Well, just just go back to 2016's numbers and we're, we're fine. So we can have a much longer discussion about my rejection of the how will you pay for it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, and which is a terrible, actually I saw a tweet from Sanders this week which was uh, somebody was talking about um, the, the military outposts and some of the, the long-term commitments and his quote was, how are you going to pay for it? And I thought, well finally someone's turning this on its head because this is a talking point that just doesn't get asked of Republicans when they're talking about a lot of the priorities that they're usually pushing forward in their primaries, which, by the way, we're not even having a Republican primary, essentially, because the president wouldn't really like one. So that's 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 always fun
1: as well. Oh, shaded Bill Weld. Come on. The, man, the man's out there working hard. I'm not
0: talking about Bill Weld or Mark Sanford, uh, who's back on the trail or off the trail. Excuse me. Uh, no, it's 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 the fact that so many early states have just said they're not even going to do it. And that's that's the part of it that's just fantastically awful to me so but you were you were making a point about Democrats and their response and some of the the economic things and you were talking about the president's plan So let's let's go back to that because I don't want to lose that thread uh, Because I we spent so much time getting there and then I wanted to make sure people actually be, Because their eyes didn't glaze over and because they've stuck with us I want to make sure that we actually get you to make your point
1: totally that that's a Really important thing to reverse and we can use that money for lots of good things, but it's also important to debunk that story that by giving this big handout to corporations, we get good things because that permeates down. And I get into a lot of this in my book, which is mostly honestly about states and cities doing their own version of this. You you and I live in the greater DC metro area, right across the river in Northern Virginia, we have Amazon getting $750 million for a new headquarters. And that sort of action is based on the same premise that Trump based his corporate tax cut on, that if we give these giant companies more money, they will do great things for you, and you will wind up with more money in your pocket. It hasn't been true over and over and over again. And I really, really wish that got just a little more attention, both because it would be a nice stimulus package for things that I write and would help me get more commissions, but also because it would be genuinely good for the country to uh, to turn that around.
0: The funny part is, aside from Art Laffer getting segments booked on Fox still, like there doesn't seem to be this steadfast defense like nobody's asking people to defend it it's just taken as gospel that this is true somehow and yet as you as you correctly say and I and and as I've read in, in billionaire boondoggle and elsewhere like there's no evidence that this works you know it's it's kind of the opposite it's it's a theory in desperate pursuit of any evidence and so i wonder about how we could possibly the fact that no one's taking that hill and planting a flag on it is surprising to me But the fact is, I've been watching presidential debates for many years now, and nobody seems to want to push that button, and I'm not sure why. Pat Garofalo is with me, head of the poverty team here at CAP, the Center for American Progress, author of Billionaire Boondoggle. And, you know, Pat, one thing that I've been heartened by as someone who's interested, just just from the perspective of uh, an interesting conversation, let alone the fact of my own political proclivities, the... Slate of policies we're seeing from candidates in this cycle compared to even the most recent 2016 election seems so much more ambitious. And actually, we were, I was making a joke about Joe Biden, the fact that he's still talking about things like marijuana as a gateway drug just feels like it's trapped in amber from like the early 90s or something. You know, it's just the fact that he seems to be running for president like the last time he was running for president or, or or maybe the first time or the second um so it but talk to me about some of these policies that have been a through line for this entire process whether it's medicare for all or this wealth tax that we've seen from from Warren or some of the other policies uh, that that just just Gun right uh, gun control gun safety, uh, which has gotten more play in this cycle than the Democrats have shown appetite for since the 94 assault weapons ban. I mean, this has been a real watershed moment for some of these policies. Why do you think that is? Is it because Trump is so vulnerable? Is it because the party is acknowledging where its base is? What what is going on with the democrats that this is the policy that we see uh fighting for the uh the center stage
1: so i think it's two things i think it's part politics and part necessity and i'll take the first one first um i think sanders showed in 2016 that what everyone believed would be an instant turnoff to uh, the democratic electorate just wasn't he came out and campaigned on these really big bold you know national programs and everyone said oh there's no hope this can never sell and to some extent it did, obviously not enough to win, but it showed that you are not instantly like relegated to also ran status if you run on these big bill programs. So I think that's part of it. Honestly, I think the fact that Trump got elected and everyone looked at him and said, well, <laughs> if that can happen, then who's to say that running on Medicare for all is impossible, like come on, right guys? Um, but I think also there's just a necessity factor, right? Like we've let these problems fester for so long, we've let climate change fester, we've let income inequality fester, we've let honestly bad trade policy fester, that the scale of the problem requires these big national interventions. And so the sort of coming together of those two things, that the problems are so big and the politics of solving them in big ways are not as bad as we thought they were, have have come together and, and made it possible for this cycle to be the way it is. And I think the, the wealth stuff really opened the door to a lot of that. I think Warren very explicitly saying, no, we are actually going to tax wealth, sort of forced every other candidate to say, oh, well, how am I gonna get at that? And you, know, you saw Cory Booker in the debate this week saying, oh, well, I wouldn't do it exactly like her, but he did come out for the sorts of things like taxing capital gains higher and raising the estate tax up again. Showing that he feels the pressure to go there too, um, so I think that's only a good thing. I, you know, I was actually on uh, CNBC a few weeks ago, and they were getting on my case for you know being a socialist and being terrible and wanting to destroy rich people. Um, and they tried to drive a wedge between the sort of like Warren camp and the Larry Summerses and the Cory Bookers who all want to get at this different ways. And honestly. I don't take it that way. I think as long as we are talking about how to raise taxes on the rich instead of whether we are having the right conversation, that's a good thing.
0: It really is an Overton window shift in a dramatic way from where we were, even just during the Obama presidency. Where, and again, this is kind of why Biden feels like uh, an artifact of that, where there was just this acceptance that there wasn't going to be that Obama, despite the way he was portrayed in conservative media, wasn't
1: ever going to be this, you know, drastic socialist. Actually, you you like hit on something important there because it's also, I think, a growing recognition that no matter what a Democrat does, you're going to get called socialist. And so at a certain point, and I, you know, I think Sanders sort of obviously embodies that, but like even if the nominee were John Delaney, he's going to get called a socialist. And so at a certain point, Democrats have to grapple with that. And I think they actually are grappling with that in this cycle that like, look, Obama got called a socialist for doing absolutely non-socialist things. And like that, so we might as well go big, right? Um, so I think that's certainly played a part is that people saw the reaction to Obama and saw him compromising and offering half loaves and trying to be reasonable and just getting that label thrown back in his face. And so it was like, eh, well, you know what? We'll show you some
0: socialism, sure. <laughs> and one of the things that I think if we look at the Pete Buttigieg that existed maybe five, six months ago when he was still, before he had kind of gotten awash and a lot of uh, uh, donor money that has kind of tweaked his positions, I think he was one of the ones who very early on said exactly that, which is that, you know, we need this boldness. Now, he has since tempered himself in such a way. I guess that's a separate question, um, one that I will not necessarily pose to you. Let's let's talk about trade, because you mentioned Sanders, and when, when we were talking about Trump a minute ago, this is one area where they have a large Venn diagram of overlap, uh, and it's certainly something that worked well for both—for the Sanders-Trump voter in 2016, the person who was really considering, or at least saying they were considering it, this is an area where these— these are people who feel left behind. And so how do we manage that? I know, for example, the uh, the reboot of NAFTA is making its way through the House. Pelosi has promised that there's going to be some action on it. The president would like nothing better than to, to declare victory on this this landmark policy. So how does, how does that influence and how does that shape the, the rest of the campaign if it becomes an issue that these Democrats have to deal with?
1: So there are like two things going on here. One is just... I think anybody who looks at the international trade system for the last 30 years and says that, oh, this was fine, is just not paying any attention. I don't think there's a good argument that says that, oh, no, actually, this has worked perfectly. We've shipped our middle class across the ocean, um, and that is that, that has caused tons of problems. Therefore, I do not understand why on earth <laughs> the House Democrats would get behind the NAFTA rewrite now. I think the the plan as it exists is not very good, but just on the politics, I don't understand why you would give Trump a win on his signature issue for something that is not very good. The thing about trade is that what we think of as trade agreements don't really get negotiated anymore. Like we have in our minds is, oh, it opens up doors and brings down tariffs and I'll sell you cheese and you'll sell me grapes and everything will be fine. That's not really what modern trade agreements do. For example, new NAFTA spends a ton of time on protecting intellectual property for drug companies. Do I really care if, like, Pfizer's patents are honored in Vietnam? Like, no. Why is that the thing that Democrats are willing to, like, go to the mat for and to give Trump a win on? I, I just don't get it, particularly when it has turned into a politically salient issue, right? Like, Sanders got a ton of miles out of it and Trump got a ton of miles out of it. And so kind of getting back to I don't understand why we're letting the, the corporate tax thing go to the, the extent that we are get on that too say he promised new trade deals he promised a rethinking of you know the united states's role in the international trade system instead we got these goofy haphazard tariffs on china that are just taking farmers out left and right and this giant corporate giveaway new nafta what is happening i really wish that critique were honed a little better for the democrats
0: i was still in the white house press corps when and, and and I and asked the president about his promise to allow, for example, Medicare negotiation of prices or or just some of the bare minimum pro, uh, promises from the, the campaign trail where he was talking about drug prices. He was talking about health care costs in a way that was different from a lot of other Republicans and just completely has been ignored. It was essentially discarded by the establishment Republicans who, as you mentioned earlier, kind of run the show from the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue. And so we just haven't seen any movement on this except for movement in the opposite direction during these these trade agreements. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm a little frustrated by it because it seems like one of those moments where... The president offered something on the campaign trail, and and yes, I don't know why it's not being discussed, and he certainly hasn't brought it up again because he he can't, you know, aside from selling another promises made, promises kept bumper sticker, I don't really see how the Republicans are going to spin this one. I, I I don't think they can, but so so you're you're dissatisfied with what the House is planning to do with what Pelosi is planning to do when it comes to. The uh, the U.S. MCA. What should Democrats on the debate stage do about about this eventuality? What's likely to happen?
1: They should be saying that it's a giant corporate handout. That it is. I mean, I'd like obviously in a perfect world, I just would convince the House Democrats that I'm right about this. But I don't think that's very likely to happen. But yeah, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think the political salience of the fact that everyone in the country is sort of touched by these big corporations and their power and the power they have over our lives, whether it's Facebook losing your data or your bank losing your data or Target losing your data. uh, We all sort of experience it. And that's even leaving aside the people who literally live in the modern incarnation of the company town where they're at the whims of a GM or a Boeing whose planes can't stay in the air, uh, there, there's this touches every corner of the country and every corner of the economy. And there's a really strong critique there saying like, look, we've let these big corporations run the show for too long. And Trump is making it worse, even though he promised to make it better. So again, I just don't understand why you would give him a win on that when it is like good politics for him and just terrible policy.
0: The, two of the companies that you alluded to, uh, the company that uh, connects to my bank, PayPal, and the company that knows when my birthday is, Facebook, had a dinner with the president that they did not want publicized. And I'm thinking about this in the context of both Thiel is a complicated figure who doesn't believe that democracy and freedom can coexist in the modern world. Zuckerberg is an interesting character who doesn't seem to want to admit that his company is doing way more conservative things and is allowing... People like Breitbart and Daily Caller to run, you know, to to influence their their news This is this is a really crazy moment, and the fact that they're having secret dinners with the president is it's a strange moment, and it kind of gets to a lot of what you've written about in the book, the billionaire boondoggle, but also the questions about what what we value. And again, I, I wish the Democrats on the debate stage were talking about this in more of a values sense, but. Allowing this to exist and not and be unchecked is such a crazy thing. But then specifically this issue of this dinner, when you saw this piece of news
1: this week, I'm guessing you as I, not surprised, not at all surprised. Oh, no, not even a little bit, right? I think you could, there are few companies on earth who have done more damage to democracy than Facebook. And that's for lots of reasons. And earlier in the campaign, it did get quite a bit of attention, particularly when Warren very explicitly called for breaking up the big companies, not just uh, Facebook, but Amazon and Google, too. Um, And that's sort of fallen off. Um, And I'm not sure whose fault that is, but it's sort of drifted away as an issue. And again, I really think it's a salient one. I really wish they would get back to it. The thing about Facebook is that its business model is fundamentally built on selling you trash online and collecting your eyeballs onto trash. And so they're never going to be able to fix the problem they've had that have sort of pushed them into the Trump camp. Like every time, you know, Democrats come rolling down and say, hey, you need to get rid of the fake news. You need to get rid of the political ads. And Zuckerberg goes, yes, 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 we're totally on it. We're very committed to this. No, he's not, because his business model is based on doing the exact opposite. Right. That the, every incentive baked into Facebook is to give you that junk and to get you to click on more of it. And so it's just fundamentally at odds. And so it doesn't surprise me at all to see him falling into the more conservative camp. I obviously don't know his politics, but for his business, that makes sense.
0: I know this isn't a conversation about impeachment, but I believe fundamentally that the business interests that you've cataloged and that we've seen line up behind the president, the the same business interests who have argued that if Warren were the candidate, they might, you know, for example, Bill Gates not being able to say that he would vote against Donald Trump. If uh, someone like Warren were the democratic nominee, that's a, that's a fundamentally big thing to say it gets very little attention because the the country's on fire currently. Uh, but it gets, it gets very little news. And yet that's where we are in terms of the tech world where these companies have made so much so fast and are so, concerned about losing it the idea that bill gates might not have enough billions to keep him you know i don't know in the donation and philanthropy game for the rest of his life i don't understand what the problem is here and yet there's there's a real lineup behind at least if it's not uh keeping donald trump in power it's at least not helping anyone to remove him from power it's a very it's a very interesting moment for the democracy when we've just seen the billionaire class coalesce and and this is another point that I was making earlier about, you know, people just just recently trying to jump into the race late. It's 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 not. I mean, the fact that it's Bloomberg who was encouraged by Jeff Bezos to do it shouldn't surprise people who are looking at this race and thinking, well, this we might actually have a candidate who's pushing a wealth tax. So I I, I again, not surprising but still kind of
1: shocking, which is the default emotion that I've been feeling through the Trump era. Yeah, totally. Surprised and not surprised at all, right? Like, constantly. It is just wild, and it's one of those things where, again, getting back to the point we made earlier about how everything gets called socialist, when Obama ran, it was the same thing. Oh, he's a socialist, and if he wins, the stock market is going to collapse, and you know the economy as we know it is going to sink into the ocean, and California is literally going to light on fire and float away. So the, the, the same playbook is coming out now against Warren, and I do like that she very explicitly pushes back against it, I think that's great. But we really have to sort of narrow in on what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about massive, massive, massive concentrations of wealth, right? We're not even talking about, like, very rich folks. We're talking about the ultimate rich folks. Getting back to the, the debate, it annoyed me this week when Cory Booker started pushing back on the wealth tax with Warren, saying, well, we can't just be about taxing wealth. We have to be about creating wealth, and we have to be for entrepreneurs, and we have to be for the entrepreneurial spirit. Those two things are not actually in conflict. When you talk about taxing literal billionaires, that's they aren't the entrepreneurs anymore. You know, Jeff Bezos isn't in a garage somewhere creating the next great tech startup. Instead, he's going around the country buying up the actual next great tech startup and ensuring it never sees the light of day, he's going around and making sure that the next guy can't compete with him. So if we were actually concerned about that, we'd be taking the money from, say, Bezos and using it to actually fund the people who are doing good innovative work so it really kind of grinds in my gears when we put those in 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 opposition to each other because it's just not taxing billionaires is not stomping on the next great startup in a garage
0: pat i'm i'm, I'm kind of loath to to make this analogy because anyone who's listened to this conversation knows that i don't care or know shit about sports so i i can't pretend like this is something that i'm going to say with any authority however i'm thinking about Coming up this Thanksgiving, it's a it's a football watching holiday for a lot of the people. I I do not. I like to cook and help. Uh, you know, I like to to defy gender norms by uh, spending most of my time in the kitchen on Thanksgiving. But I know that if we're looking for an example to how to drive home the point that we are making about billionaire class, I think it's something like Bezos is more likely to buy an NFL team, for example. And I think I saw a news item that he might be than rolling back and giving higher wages to his employees or letting them you know you know shake three times after they take a pee break because they can't have to get back on the line or something like there there's he that's literally the thing that his priority is so i and maybe buying an nfl team is is good for the country it's good for for
1: uh the economy i don't I don't need one, so I don't understand how anybody else could need one. Yeah, we really, we really don't need that to happen. Uh, but it's a really good point. There's been a there's been a raging debate here in D.C. about what to do with the Washington Races Names Football Team, and the, which is the one that that there was the rumor that Bezos might be interested in buying from their equally odious owner, Dan Snyder. Um, and the debate has been whether we should build a stadium for said football team here in the district and gift it to them.
0: Now, I do like
1: the fact that owning
0: an NFL team would be another way that he would diminish donald trump who only owned like a what is it like an american like some xfl or like some other again i know nothing about sports so please on twitter correct me and tell me what i've gotten wrong here uh but donald trump didn't own he tried to buy i think the bills or something and couldn't so the part of me that wants trump to be you know to to have that I don't want like watching billionaires fight, but if I am going to have to watch billionaires fight, I don't want Donald Trump to win.
1: We're assuming Donald Trump is a billionaire. I don't know about that. That's a fair oh, player. I'm not fair follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that does get to the point, right? That the fact that we're even talking about the possibility of a guy like Jeff Bezos buying an NFL team and then the residents of Washington, DC, who have lots of things that we could spend our money on, like preventing the metro from catching on fire, building a palace for him in which to play gets at the dynamic that we're talking about, right? And gets to the lie we've all been told about where jobs and economic growth comes from. I think that's like a really good way to put a tag on it. The fact that that debate even exists is patently absurd.
0: Well, hopefully that'll give people at least one thing that they can use for their family, for, you know, against their racist uncle or whatever on Thanksgiving. Pat, I really appreciate the conversation. Pat is the uh, talkpoverty.org managing editor at the Center for American Progress, author of Billionaire Boondoggle, which uh, I, I, uh, i 've enjoyed quite a bit and 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 a good person who I've uh, you know there are very few people in DC who I, I actually like uh, and so Pat Pat and his wife are, are, are two of them so uh, thanks so much for spending some time with me on at the table and uh, and for providing a little bit of analysis with me for it
1: Oh, that was like the nicest out show ever thanks <laughs> <No problem>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do here that's a full, it's a full service at the table so
1: thank you so much great to be here